Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. And you may be asking, what in the world are we doing singing Christmas songs here in January? Well, that's because, as you know, we are reached the birth of Christ as we go through in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading the verse 7 verses today. I hope you've been praying and reading over that this week. And get it. we encourage you to read the passage, pray over it. Uh, so when we come together, we're all together and understand what we're doing. The title is called The Father's Plan. But before we get into that, I have a question for you. Does anyone here remember the old television show, The A-Team? Anyone here? Does anyone want to agree that they love that show? Come on, anyone? Come on, a few of you. Come on. You know, it is one of the few shows that my family would all gather together that we would watch together and actually enjoy together. We love the crazy antics of the characters. Murdoch, Mr. T, uh, Mr. T, you know, the face, and then Colonel Hannibal Smith. We love the wild exploits of the plot. You know, it was always something that was over the top and the unbelievable missions they undertook. One of my favorite parts of that show, though, was near the end. When Colonel Hannibal Smith would, would take a cigar, shove it between his teeth, and he would say, anybody? I love it when a plan comes together. And I'm glad that that actually worked. It's true. We love it when a plan comes together. What a line. Great line. It's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? When a plan does come together, when you put something and it shows and turns out the way it is. Now, I don't know that feeling, especially when it came to building toys or or objects with my kids. Anyone here have a husband or a spouse that just as soon as they open up something, they throw away or disregard the manuals and the instruction sheets? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know who you're talking about. It's really funny because Landon and I have this, we get these stem boxes every month that, and I had, for Landon, I finally had to get the one that was two ages above him because he just can do those so well, and he doesn't read the instructions. I'm sitting here reading the instructions with my glasses off, and he's saying, no, Bob, it goes just like this. And I said, no, no, Landon, we got to read the, yeah, yeah, that's the way it goes. <laughs> or I'm doing it. He says, no, 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 let me do it. And he just, he's one of those kids that doesn't really need the instructions. But, you know, it's a wonderful feeling when a plan comes together. There's a sense of accomplishment, isn't there? And a satisfaction in a job well done. Well, last week we read of the father's joy in receiving a wonderful gift of a son, a son of promise, and the knowledge that God was going to use that son to serve God in his purposes. And Zechariah praises Yahweh for his faithfulness and goodness. And so we looked at a father's joy last week, but this week we're going to look at a father's plan. In today's passage, we're going to move now to the second chapter of Luke as he records the eyewitnesses' account of Jesus' birth. One theologian remarks that Luke gives a very brief account in this passage of Jesus' birth that contains three elements, a political situation, a messianic claim, and then the humble circumstances of his birth. So with that, take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2, the first seven verses. They will be here on the screen as well if you need it. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. If you do not have a Bible, I'd love to give one to you at the end of the service. But as we go, let's read what Luke writes. <clears throat> he says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. 
and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Father, we just come, and this is a familiar passage of Scripture. We spent last month uh, considering this in a lot of different ways with Christmas cards, through TV shows and specials, through nativity scenes. But Father, as we come, let us see it with a new light. Uh, It's an old message, one though that sometimes becomes so familiar that we just take for granted what we believe the passage says. But just be with us this morning as we just take some time to consider it, speak to our hearts and and our minds. Lord, limit the distractions. And Father, may I just speak the words that are glorifying and edifying. Lord, that we may respond to your Spirit's work this morning. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we have seen in this first chapter, Luke has written an orderly account of the life of Christ in order to, uh, in order that his Gentiles readers may have certainty about the things they have heard, received, and believed from the disciples, the apostles, and others. Luke testifies that he has recorded these events by interviewing eyewitnesses that can confirm what the apostles have taught and spread across the Roman Empire. So when you and I are reading uh, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, we are getting an eyewitness account that Luke spoke to. So we can have certainty about what we're learning here. And as we come to the birth of Christ, we read that Luke includes some details that Matthew did not include in his gospel. Like the setting. The setting is, is from Nazareth, but what we're seeing is they're moving from Nazareth to Judea to Bethlehem. The occasion is a worldwide sentence, a census, excuse me. The plot is Mary and Joseph as they travel to Bethlehem to register for that census. And there she goes into labor, delivers the Christ child. And we see characters as Caesar Augustus, the governor of Syria, Mary, Joseph, and just with a brief introduction, the Christ child. This passage helps us to dispel the importance of this, I believe, in some of the ways that we think of the certainty that this passage gives us, is that it dispels some of the most popular myths about Jesus' birth. Gabriel Hughes writes in his book, 25 Christian Myths. He says in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, we see that this verse has been taken out of context and has led to three common Christian myths, Christmas myths, I should say. First, when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem at the last minute, they were turned away by an innkeeper. And so Mary had to give birth to the Savior of the world in a barn. Here's what he writes. None of that is true. That is not what Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. No matter what you may even see on this stage when our children give uh, uh, the Christmas story, many of those elements are not truly part of it. So we need to understand what is going on. You see, there was no innkeeper. It does say there was no room for an inn, but the innkeeper was not there. Instead, you and I have to understand is when he says an inn, that word actually means guest room. You'll see it in Luke chapter 22, verse 12. When Jesus sends the disciples, he says, go into the next town and prepare for me a room that we may 
observe the Lord's Supper. And we see then that they go into the guest room, the upper room that we think of the last night of Christ. So there was no commercial inn, as you and I think of like the Days Inn and the Marriott in those days. Now, maybe in some of the larger cities, but certainly not in the village of Bethlehem. There would be no commercial inn. So what we see that there is really no innkeeper because there is no inn, as you and I many times think of that. There's no barn or cave or stable that we normally see in a nativity scene or as we sing, uh, in a cave, in a lowly stable, the Savior of the world was born. Instead, what we see is they most likely were in a home, a family home. As this passage tells us, Joseph was going to Bethlehem because why? That's where he was from. He had family there. Now, what you and I have to understand when we think of, uh, of, of this thing and why Jesus was born in a manger is back then that homes typically were two stories. The people would live in the second story. And then to protect their animals and their livestock that they use for farming and for food and for, for, uh, you know, the milk and things of that nature, they would live in the bottom of the house. That's actually, uh, actually very, um, common in the world, parts of the world today. And so the animals would go at night into the house. Now that served several purposes. One, it would protect their animals and they would guard them from either being stolen or also from wolves and other animals. But it also senses a way, especially in, in the wintertime or when it was cold, the animals then would give heat and would heat up the top of the part. So they're not mentioned here as an upstable or a barn or cable. You won't find that in, in Luke chapter 2. But what we also need to understand that Joseph and Mary were not homeless. No, they were staying at a guest room. However, what we're going to see is when the time came for her to get birth, there was no privacy in the guest room. And so they had to move down to where they could have privacy. Hence why they had to put her in a manger, in a place, in a food trough where the animals would eat. Now, an extra bonus from Luke chapter 2, verse 7 also informs us that Mary was not a perpetual virgin as the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, some Lutherans and Methodist churches teach. Instead, Luke writes that she gave birth to her what? Firstborn. Now, if someone says firstborn, what are you going to assume? That there's at least a second. And many times that's lost in here in what Luke is writing, a historian. To write firstborn indicates that she had other sons afterwards, at least one. However, Scripture identifies uh, James and Joseph and Simon and Jude as brothers of Jesus. So he had at least four brothers as well as sisters, as we see in the gospel. And so what you and I have to understand is we need sometimes to separate truth and fiction, myths and things that are really true. Many things happen. And Luke is writing so we can have certainty about what's going on that night. Now, we don't know all things. This is a very brief description. It doesn't tell us anything really about how she gave birth, how long she gave birth, and things of that nature. But it tells us the things that we're to have certainty about. You know, it's important for you and I as we read Scripture to not to go beyond what the text reveals to us. So many bad doctrines have been based on poor observation, wrong interpretation, and incorrect application. And many things have had have come wrong from misreading and misinterpreting and applying Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. 
And though this is very brief, what Luke adds to the origins of Jesus' birth helps you and I to understand God's plan of redemption for his children. Again, where are we in the story? We are in the redemption part of God's story, the story of Scripture, of the Bible. We are now being introduced of who the prince is going to be. And this passage serves to reveal some wonderful spiritual truths about God's plan of redemption. It's beginning here. Scripture informs us that this plan actually began before the very foundations of the world. We see its promise soon after the fall of humanity in Genesis 3.15. When God promised Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, speaking to Satan. And he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Now the prophets of the Old Testament had prophesied of the redemption story and of its coming Messiah. It was foreshadowed by the work of the priests as they would go and they would slay the animals. It's the the faithful of Israel anticipated the appearing of the Messiah and the beginning of redemption. Scripture tells us that even the very creation groans for the redemption of man and the creation. The Bible reveals that before that time, before time began, that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had purpose that they would redeem their children from the curse of sin and death. We learn that the Father sends the Son to be offered as the substitute to satisfy the wrath of God, thereby demonstrating both His justice, His righteousness, and His mercy. We see that the Son obeys the Father through His active obedience by becoming flesh, as we see here in this passage, obeying the requirements of the law perfectly and offering Himself in passive obedience Excuse me, at the cross. By doing so, he he satisfies God's wrath against us and reconciles us back to the Father. And the Holy Spirit, then we see, serves to bring us to the Father by giving witness to the work of Christ on our behalf, by guiding us into the truth, by empowering us to live godly lives and securing our salvation until the day that Christ returns physically to bring us before the Lord. That's the story of redemption that we're seeing here beginning in the flesh in Luke chapter 2. In this passage, we read of this plan as it becomes a reality. As Christ, the prince, enters this world to begin his mission to seek and to save the lost. Amen? This passage serves to demonstrate three truths. And I want to spend just a little bit of time demonstrating those three truths that you're going to find in this passage. Number one. The Father's plan demonstrates His sovereignty. This passage demonstrates the Father's sovereignty. In verse 1 of Luke 2, we learn why and how Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Now, this is important because it was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Messiah would be born there. But you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, Micah prophesies, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, who is coming, whose coming is from of old, from ancient days. From before time, we had determined the Holy, the, 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 the Trinity says, we are coming to Bethlehem. Now you might recall from Matthew's gospel, that when the wise men came to worship Christ, that they first went to King Herod 
to inquire where they might find this king of the Jews. Herod, as you might recall, consults his experts who go on to search the scriptures and then they quote to him Micah 5.2. And sure enough, two years after his birth, the wise men find him at Bethlehem. Yes, once again, the wise men were not at the, at the guest house or the, you know, the stable where he was born. They were not there in the nativity. The apostle John points out that this was one of the problems that the, react, the religious leaders actually had with Jesus. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 7, if you would, very quickly. Verse 41 and 42, just so you may see this. As wrong as they were, they at least knew the scriptures. In John chapter 7, look, look at verse 41, and here's their problem they had with Jesus. As people were uh, seeing his ministry, seeing his miracles, hearing his teaching, and were amazed by it, it says that others said that this is the Christ. But some answered, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from where? Bethlehem, the village where David was. And see, this is why you and I need to have certainty about the scriptures. Since Jesus grew up in Nazareth, they wrongly assumed that he was born there. However, the father's plan was to have Jesus born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this passage, talking of Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, clearly points out that Joseph went to Bethlehem because he was of the lineage of of David, meaning that he was part of the royal family. This was necessary because Yahweh had promised King David in 2 Samuel that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, speaking of when he would die, he says, I will praise up your offspring after you who shall come after your body or come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, Yahweh promises. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so you and I must understand this truth. Now, much of this you know and has been explained before. But what you and I must be must consider is how will Jesus be born in Bethlehem when his parents are from Galilee, almost 100 miles away? Luke had pointed this out very clearly early on that she was from Galilee. Gabriel uh, appeared to Mary in Galilee. She had traveled earlier to see uh, her, her aunt Elizabeth, but then she had went back up to Galilee. So how is he to get from there to here? Luke is writing this so that you and I may not be confused by the location of Jesus' birth as the religious leaders who assumed that Jesus was born in Galilee. The father's plan was that the Redeemer would be a descendant of King David and that he would be born in the small village of Bethlehem. What is interesting is how God chooses to get Christ there to here. As we read Luke's account of how they got from Nazareth to Bethlehem, you and I must first might first get the opinion that it was because of Caesar's edict. However, as John MacArthur correctly points out, on the surface, political reasons determine where Jesus is born. But the ultimate cause is the God who controls history. 
and who guarantees that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem in accordance with the Old Testament prophecy. So the question is, is Jesus there? Is Mary and Joseph there due to an earthly king's uh, uh, um, command? Or are they there according to the place and purposes of the creator of the universe? And the correct answer is yes, from both. From ancient sources, it seems that the Roman Empire would have a census from anywhere from 5 to 14 years in order to gauge how many military men there were there and how to help them gauge and get data of how to collect, collect for tax purposes. And once again, as a conquered nation, Israel must demonstrate allegiance to Roman, to the Roman Empire, but yet in doing so, they also see prophecy fulfilled. Hence why I say in this passage, what you and I see is God demonstrates his sovereignty. He is not there just because Caesar made it so, but God uses Caesar to accomplish his, his purposes. Though it may see that Caesar's word can put the world in motion, and it does, it is really the will of the Father that he performs. It is through the Roman Empire and its ruler that God's plan begins here on earth. Caesar, you and I must understand, is still subordinate to God. And he actually accomplishes God's plan. Look here in the monitor. Scripture informs us in Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. So Luke wants us to have certainty that the Father is sovereign. The work, the Father works all things according to his purposes, that his will may be accomplished. What you and I are reading here in this passage is what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Galatians chapter 4, when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so what you and I are reading here is that the fullness of time had come. What had been decided before time ever began had finally come to fulfillment. It is now time and God works through human means to get them from Galilee to Bethlehem as he prophesied from the ancients of days. Number two, not only do we see the father plan demonstrates his sovereignty, but number two, we see that the father's plan demonstrates his love for his children. It demonstrates his love for his children. You know, it would be well within the father's right to leave all of humanity in its sin and for you and I just to reap what we rightly deserve, death. Yet we see that God desired to communicate his love and his mercy by providing redemption to children who had rebelled, children who were disobedience against him. Of course, you and I have heard of the famous, familiar uh, passage that is well known by most people of the world. You'll see it here on the screen. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Right? that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent Christ. Verse 17 goes on to state, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The, 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 the goal of redemption. 
The Father wants to demonstrate His love in this passage by sending His Son. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians is this wonderful book. I can't wait for us to get into it. Ephesians chapter 1, we see a wonderful story of redemption. We see what God is doing for His children who are disobedient. Ephesians chapter 1, we read of God's plan. Start with me in verse 3 where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before what? The foundation of the world. Hence you get the phrase I gave you earlier. That we should be holy and blameless uh, blameless before Him. Verse 5, In love, in love, He predestined us for adoptions as Son through Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, once again, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, through, uh, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What you and I see as Mary gives birth in this brief account, you and I are seeing the Father demonstrating his love to you and I. Turn to quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the what? The great love which He loved us. You may just want to underline that verse as a great verse to remember. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But because of the great love, He loved us. When did He love us? When we were unlovable. When we were disobedient. When we were rebellious. Not because we deserved it. Not because it was our birthright. This passage serves to demonstrate God's great love and mercy. For without His love, you and I would be hopeless. We would be helpless. So not only does it demonstrate God's sovereignty and His plan demonstrate His love, but thirdly, the Father's plan demonstrates the obedience of the Son of Christ. It demonstrates the obedience of the Son of Christ. Now, Christ just, he, he just makes an appearance right at the end there of verse seven. He doesn't have any lines. There's no stage and, you know, stage, interstage, right or left. He's just kind of there, right? And she gives birth to her firstborn son. But even this account demonstrates the obedience of the Son of God. Jesus enters in this world without fanfare. He enters in this in a small village without the trappings of royalty. Think of that. When you first consider Christ's appearance as a small, helpless babe, the one who is the prince, the son of God, the Messiah, the one in which the government will rest upon his shoulders, do you and I think this was the Father's plan? Is this the plan that you would come up for royalty, 
for one who is going to rule the nations? Is this what you would come up if we were to create a committee that says, what's the best way to bring the Redeemer, the Savior into the world? Would you choose this plan? But the Father's plan accomplishes perfectly what he sets up for it to do. However, the humble beginnings captures beautifully what Paul writes concerning Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. It's here on the monitor. You've heard this portion. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by, came, by becoming obedient to the point of death. Hence why I say this passage demonstrates the obedience of the, of the Son. For this was the Father's plan. Jesus, the Son of God, the Prince who comes to slay the dragon, the Messiah, the Christ, he obediently obeys the Father and he humbles himself and becomes flesh in the form of a helpless babe. What is interesting about this passage, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, is the contrast between Caesar in chapter 1 and verse 7 when we see Jesus. Now, Augustus, if you know your history, he's the Roman Empire. By this time, he has consolidated his role as the supreme ruler over all of the Roman Empire, which controlled most of the known world at that time. His word was law. And what you see there, by one command, he moves the world into action. When you and I see read Luke's account, it is apparent that he has the power and the authority to order everyone to do his bidding. Now, Augustus was considered by the Roman world as more than just a mere human. By this time, he had be actually been considered divine as a god. One ancient inscription describes Augustus. And listen to this. This is what it said of Augustus. Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, an imperator of land and of sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. This was the mantra of the Roman Empire. This is what you would agree to. It was Caesar worship. This was Augustus. He could do all that he wanted, anything he wanted. And the people would bow down and say these types of things about him. Yet you and I know as we read Luke chapter 2, that Augustus is none of those things. In this passage, it is the little baby that is divine. It is the little child that's the son of God who's the Lord of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all of life and the Savior of the world. I like how the Bible Project describes Jesus as the messianic king who will bring God's reign and blessings. Yet he doesn't come as a Caesar or Augustus. He doesn't come as a Roman emperor. He doesn't even come as the governor. He comes as a helpless babe in a small little village that was of no consequence. 
Jesus humbly demonstrates his obedience to the Father's plan. And this should cause you and I to follow him with all of our heart and soul and might. Because he is the Son of God. He is the Redeemer. Now, even today, you and I understand this and we know this. But yet still, people today cast doubt on Jesus' birth, just as they did then. They deny his historical person. They disregard his teachings. They diminish his ministry. They demean his miraculous works. However, Luke's record ought to bring certainty to our faith in the Father's plan to send his Son to redeem his children. The plan is perfect, and it came together as it should. It ought to bring us three things, and here's the application. It ought to bring us assurance, gratitude, and a pattern for our life. The Father's plan should bring us assurance, gratitude, and a pattern for our life. First, the Father's plan brings us assurance because no matter the circumstances, you and I know that God is always in control. He is in charge. Nothing can thwart His plan of redemption. And you and I understand as though we have been saved once for all, His plan of redemption is still needing to be complete when you and I are brought up to Christ when He comes again and receive the full glorification of our body. You and I must have assurance. It does not matter what political party is in, in control. It doesn't matter who has nuclear weapons. I don't care if it's the imams, it's the crazy man in North Korea. It doesn't really matter in the, in, in, in the, in the full scope of things. It doesn't matter who dictates cultural and social norms. It doesn't even matter if Chick-fil-A opens up on a Sunday. Life continues. God is still in charge. God's will will be done. So why do I say have assurance? Christians, sometimes we are, are, are fretting and anxious too much. We're worried about who's in charge, who is the leader, what's going on in social. And yes, as citizens and residents in the United States, yes, we have the ability to do many things that other people in the world can't. We have control over so much more through elections and through uh, act, uh, activities and being a part of things. But yet we should not remember or we should not forget that God is in control. It doesn't matter what man does or what choices they make. We must not be anxious or afraid. You and I must trust in the sovereignty of the Father who promises, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. We must be assured that God is in control and he demonstrates his sovereignty each and every day. Should we still vote? Should we still be active in politics and, 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 and holding up Christian ideas? Yes. But yet there are many people in other countries that cannot do that. And the word still goes for them. Trust, be assured of the sovereignty of God. The Father's plan should also lead us to gratitude as we embrace the love of the Father. The Apostle John tells us that we love because he first loved us. The fact that the Father loves us should lead us to willingly submit to his rule and worship him. 
The Father loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us when we were rebels against him. Yet he chose to love us. So would you love this morning? Would you choose to love? And may that come from a grateful heart attitude that recognizes that he has demonstrated his love towards us. But then as we look at the Father's plan, it also gives us a pattern of how you and I should live our lives. The Apostle Paul teaches us to have the mind of Christ when we considered what Christ did, how he humbly and obediently went to the cross. Peter warns us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So our pattern of life should be one of servanthood, of, of submitting and loving others, of being humble. Our lives should be marked with humbleness in all of our relationships and in all of our endeavors. Let us consider the Father's plan of redemption as we are assured, as we love, and we're humble. For that was the Father's plan. I'd like to close with these words that are found in Isaiah 55. It's here on the monitor. Isaiah writes, speaking of God, this is God's words, speaking of himself. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow comes down from the heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There we head bowed and every eye closed. I ask the worship team to come up. <clears throat> What I'd like to do this morning, I'd just like to close with this. An exhortation and encouragement. If you're here this morning, if you're an unbeliever, if you do not believe the words of God or the fact of Jesus as a Savior, then I would call you to repentance and confess that Jesus is Lord. Would you see God's sovereignty and God's love in redeeming His people? Would you see that Christ came in the flesh so that you and I may have eternal life. If you're a skeptic this morning, if you're not sure of the uh, facts of Scripture, may you be encouraged by Luke, as who as an historian writes an orderly account, speaking from a writing from the eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus' life. May you see that he fulfills the prophecies that God had spoken centuries before. If you're here this morning, you're a struggling Christian. You're struggling by being assured of the sovereignty of God. Your mind and your heart is filled with doubts and anxiety and worry. If you're struggling with knowing that God loves you and, and struggling and living in humility, I would pray that you would see that God's plan is to make us as himself. And would you give yourself over to him? Would you be rest and find rest in the Father's plan? And for the Christian this morning, life is going well. You're fighting sin. You're trusting God. Then I encourage you, would you share the good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am of the foremost. And would you share with them the Father's plan to give us assurance, to give us gratitude for his love, and also a pattern for our life as we live in humility 
with others. Father, I pray that you would do so. Work and let the Holy Spirit work in each life as it sees fit. And Lord, may we respond to that work, that you may be glorified. And Father, for our good, we praise in Christ's name. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.